welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over 100 years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is The Sound of the Hound. Welcome to this episode of The Sound of the Hound. I'm Dave Holly. I'm James Hall. Today we are talking about um, da, 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 we are talking about it's it's the sort of rags to riches story really one of the greatest early rags to riches stories in opera of someone who had one of the defining voices in opera a, a lady called Emma Calvey. Yeah, Emma Calvey. She she was it unusually, you know, quite a lot of opera stars came from quite well-off backgrounds because you had to go through a lot of schooling to learn how to sing. At the highest level, she was. She came from a coal mining town in in um, south of France, De Casville. Very good. That's how th- I think how she would have said it. Born in 1858, she, her father was not a coal miner though. He he was he worked on um, train tracks, laying train tracks. He, I wouldn't call him an engineer, but he, he he was involved in the process of laying train tracks, which took him to Spain. So the first six years of uh, Emma Calvé's life, she was in Spain, and apparently she kept the ability to learn. Um, to speak Spanish all the way through her life. Ah, which is a clue to her most famous role, isn't it? It was, which is... Carmen. Carmen. It was the role that she defined. It was was her massive hit. It was her massive hit. And it was the role that defined her for the rest of her life. She had to sing it many times and a year. People st- still sing Carmen in her in her mould, sort of. Yes, thing, she, she, and I think before she went on stage as Carmen, she went back to Spain and researched the part and actually sort of lived among the, the, uh, she did, the people the, that are featured in the opera, which was a bit of the seedy side of life. It certainly was. But we are getting slightly ahead of ourselves yes. because we're going to just talk a little bit about how Emma came to be recorded. We're then going to go a bit more into her history and then tell the story of the rather um, frustrating-sounding recording sessions and yeah. play some of the music, which is quite extraordinary. Um, so the year is 1902. Fred Geisberg and his team have been in Milan calling, uh, recording Enrico Caruso. That was in April uh, 1902. Um, and they're kind of buoyed up, aren't they? They're basking in the afterglow. They've had a big hit. They've had, they finally... I mean, Caruso... Um, well, they haven't released them yet. They've ah, recorded no, them. No, they're you're planning. Right. The plan is to come back to Covent Garden, press up the records, or have them pressed up in Hanover, and then release them in London yeah. to coincide with Caruso's Covent Garden performance that May, May 1902. It, it, it's a bit like... George Martin's The Beatles Have Recorded Please Please Me, and they know, gentlemen, you've recorded your first number one single, George, <laughs> and they know they've got something great in the bag that's going to come out soon. So they're, they're buzzing. Yes, They're really absolutely. buzzing. And so they do, a, the, the, Fred and his team, uh, Landon Ronald, Landon, they do a, a, a flurry of signings. Uh, they kind of hoover up seven of the most distinguished artists who were shortly to appear in Covent Garden to try and replicate this model. You know, let's hit the ground running. They they appear in Covent Garden. Here are the records. Yeah, they get a lot um, of press when they come and play at Covent Garden. Yeah. And and guess what? They've got records out. You exactly. can buy. It's yeah. like the British invasion in the sixties yeah. in America. You know, you have got the zombies and the kinks and the animals and the hollies. There's this gold rush to sign up singers. So uh, they signed up some names which I, not being an op- opera buff, don't I hadn't heard of. But um, David 
David Bispham, I can't even pronounce that, David Bispham, uh, who's a baritone, apparently, Antonio Scotti. Um, I've heard of him. And an American soprano called Suzanne Adams. Now, I've heard of her. And they sign up a, the, uh, a celebrated French operatic heroine called Emma Calvé. And Emma Calvé, in 1902, she will be 44 years old. She is absolutely at the top of her game. And she is has a reputation. She certainly does. Um, bit of a diva. Bit of a diva. Bit of a diva. Hell of a voice. Quite hard work. And quirky and quirky and, and a bit of a history now yeah a bit of a dark history a twisty turny dark yeah history, so really. really i mean uh, so dave J- james you, been... suggested this as a, a, a as a as a topic for for this podcast and i thought well there's a fantastic story which we're going to get to about recording her yeah. and i thought is that it and then <laughs> i started researching and i think i actually think um, um, this is hubristic but i think it's the most interesting story of a life that we've dealt with so far so emma as we said she she's working class she, her father's on the railroads. They go off to, to Spain for six years. They come back to south of France uh, in, in a very working class coal mining area. She goes to the local convent. She's spotted with a fantastic voice very early. And then something happens in the relationship between her mother and her father and they split up. Probably quite an unusual situation. And her mother then, when Emma is 16, they go to Paris to live in Paris. And Emma has clearly got the um, the singing bug, the performing bug, and she she tries to get into schools. She tries to find teachers. She's very unsuccessful at finding people that can help her develop this into a career. And then she finds a chap whose name is is escaping me. Have you got him on your? Is that, is that Marchesi? That could well be Marchesi. Matilde Marchesi. She is 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 that female Matilda? Matilde with an E? No. No. Am I still got someone else? Yeah, no, the, the first teacher was Puget. Ah, Puget, that's me. right. Sorry about that. Um, she goes to Paris with her mother. With her mum. When the parents split up, and her two brothers, and she really pursues a singing career. With not a lot of luck to start off with, she tries to get into um, conservatoires, and she tries to find people who can teach her how to sing, until she finds Monsieur Puget. Monsieur Puget was somebody who had been a singer himself at the uh, the, the Parisian Opera Comique. Um, and that's a connection that comes in useful later on later. for her. Um, and she has two years, he, he teaches her for free. Um, and she begins in her 20s to, to, to get one or two small roles, but struggles. And for 10 years, she's, she's really floating around odd, you know, chorus roles, small roles and then something happens she lands a role of in a new opera called carmen a new opera called carmen she obviously had raw talent didn't she yeah and she then... she she'd started to get one or two bigger roles in the particularly in the comera the opera opera comique yeah. before that but then this new role and possibly because of her Spanish background, she speaks the language, yeah. she gets the role, and it's a massive, massive hit. And she goes to... Because Carmen is a, is, a, is a gypsy girl, we could, and, and, and she, she went to Spain, didn't she? And she watched, she watched the cigarette girls selling cigarettes on the street, and she learnt, she kind of copied their movements, and she learnt their dancing, and she got their characters. She studied those sort of method, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I think that's what... She was known as, um, you know, opera. There's, there's a classic image, isn't it? People who, don't, who look nothing like their parts, yeah. who stand yeah. stationary and just yeah. sing. And the drama side of things is is, is undercooked. Yeah. She is... She's a bit like, more like Robert De Niro, a bit of a method, <laughs> bit of a method. method actress. See, I, went to, I, went, I saw Carmen about 10 years ago, and there, there is definite character in Carmen. She's a very confident, swaggering... 
sassy uh, sa- sassy passionate and there's a real there's a real presence to her yeah the way she just kind of but but she this, this is the archetype this is set, exactly she, this is she, the archetype emma calvey sets the the bar and it's the bar that's that people refer back to and yeah. and, and she created the character and there's yeah. a picture I and mean, we'll put it on our website but she looks i mean she's quite she's striking looking she's got this kind of massive dark curly hair she's quite buxom there's a touch of um and i don't mean this necessarily it's going to sound negative and it's not meant there's a touch of sort of the sort of hattie jakes about her do you remember hattie jakes yeah, from uh, the for, for, carry on yes but, but, but i mean that in a kind of she's got this she's got this very expressive face and there's a picture of her actually smoking a cigarette as carmen yeah this is a great that I've, I've got here uh, her obituary in time magazine oh, um and th- this is she's described well, her Carmen is is um, described as as the uh, you know the the archetype, but she's she's described her buzzamy photographs. She's described as buzzamy, which which is, probably you wouldn't use that word these days. But the critic Henry E. Krebiel, Krebiel, K R E H B I E L, I can't pronounce it, said she presented a woman. This is the Carmen. She mm. presented a woman thoroughly wanton and diabolically equipped with the wicked witcheries which explained if they did not palliate the conduct of don jose in some respects she left absolutely nothing to the imagination wow thoroughly wanton she sounds great that's a great thoroughly wanton thoroughly wanton yeah anyway so that's carmen carmen explodes and she goes round the world touring it london europe she goes across to america then when she gets to america something happens and it's 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 a bit of a mystery. This is the this, are we talking about the tragedy the, the, here? The tragedy, oh, yeah. She gets terrible. to Chicago in eighteen ninety four, and um, there there are various stories and various biographies on record sleeves and on the internet that says she lost her daughter in eighteen ninety four um, in an accident in Chicago. A fire, a fire. But I've read Emma Calvey's autobiographies, and she doesn't mention the daughter. Or this incident at maybe, all. Maybe that's then maybe that's grief. She, it she's could, just it r- written be, it out yeah. of her. And equally, um, there's, there's no evidence of a of a husband and a father in her life yeah. at this point. She, well, perhaps she that, again. Perhaps that's yeah, why she she definitely enjoyed relationships with people, um, <laughs> <laughs> including including there's there's a relationship she has with a with a famous French occultist. Ah, oh, now this called Jules Bois. Now this around so, this time, yeah. So she, so the, the, her daughter was was killed uh, apparently in a fire when she was on stage in Chicago, as as in Emma was on stage in yeah. in Chicago, which was obviously terrible. Uh, when she was grieving, she met an Indian uh, an Indian mystic, a sort of Hindu monk called Swami Vivekananda. That's right. Who it turns out was a quite a big figure, it, not only in Eastern mysticism but also in the in the independence movement. Actually, yeah, he was. Um, he was a, himself was a disciple of an earlier mystic called Ramakrishna. But the point is that Vivekananda was instrumental in introducing mysticism to the, to the West, which was a big thing in those days. Yeah. And Calvey travelled around with him. Yeah. She went to Egypt and Europe, and he founded this thing called the Vedanta Society, which... I think has a couple of retreats in California now. Yeah, you drive up, you know, drive up the Big Sur, and there are these kind of 
yeah. hidden away, sort of semi-ashes. And there's one in, in India as well, one in a India. massive, what looks like a sort of castle yeah. um, there, like the Taj Mahal. And um, he, he influenced people like um, Gandhi and, and, and Tagore and Sri Aurobindo, who were the, sort of the planted the seeds of the independence yeah. movement. So this guy was... was but he was also a, a yoga teacher. He was, exactly. He introduced teacher. yoga. But I think it's interesting where they meet, just because she's she apparently has lost her daughter and then he meets she meets him when she's grieving yeah um certainly in in the biography it refers to her um being depressed what we would consider depressed these days she doesn't use those words she's very down she considers suicide yeah she several times she i can't remember where she is somewhere in north america and she goes to a lake and she considers drowning herself and comes back and then one of her friends suggests this guy, this guy um, Vivekananda, yeah, who who is known, and I'm going to call him Swamiji because that was his kind of call him brand name, his, his 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 nickname, to go and see him. And she goes to see Swamiji, and it's quite this, this is from her biography that uh, she she hears this consoling voice speak, "Come, my child, don't be afraid." She's quite nervous when she goes to see him. He's mm. dressed up in 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 Indian clothes with a turban and and, and glamorous um, silk silk. Um, clothes. So it's really interesting. She goes to see this guy, Swamiji, which is kind of the, the shortening of, 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 of the mystic's um, name, like yeah. it's a brand name. And uh, she's depressed. She's, she's, she's tried to kill herself. Her friend has suggested she go and see this, this guy. And he is dressed in his turban and um, his, his Indian finery. She's very nervous when she goes to see him. And she's very st- struck by how he looks. And then she walks in, and after a pause, he spoke without looking up. This is an extract from the diary. Mm. My child, he said, what a troubled atmosphere you have about you. Be calm. It is essential. And then, in a quiet voice, untroubled and aloof, this man, who did not even know my name, talked to me of my secret problems and anxieties. He spoke of things that I thought were unknown to even my closest friends. It seemed miraculous supernatural wow there you go i mean when you're vulnerable yeah you're kind of open to this kind of thing aren't you and that's the nearest reference you get to the tragedy something something that she hasn't even spoken to her nearest friends nearest friends are about this guy seems to have understood and they become huge friends and as you say they go traveling and nikolai tesla was a was a was a disciple of his as well and sarah Bernhardt, who was the English actress, who was oh, really? a huge star. And, and Bernhardt and um, Emma Cal, they travel with Swamiji to Africa. They go across Europe. To, they go into North Africa. They go to India, I think, at one point. Yeah. And he's, he's, been on the, he's been on Indian stamps five yeah. times. Yeah. Anyway, so the, 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 the point is she, she, she was a bruised soul, but she was also curious and talented and extremely interesting and she dabbled 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 in the occult i yeah. suppose we... and 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 this this happened just as she's become very famous so there's three things going on in her life fame's exploded and it's a serious fame mm. she's lost her daughter or some tragi- terrible tragedy's happened and third thing is she's met her guru, her guru. In effect. it's a bit like the beatles you know in in, um, in, in india yeah. yeah um and all these things, and the next 10 years she does a lot of traveling with them she is phenomenally successful. She sings in the Met in New York at 261 times yeah. between 1893 and 1904. Doesn't it, it come to an end in 1904? Was, 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 she falls out, doesn't she? With, is this with when the, she, um... <laughs> she refuses? Yes, she's, she's, she's rehearsing in, I forget which opera it was, and um, the music director 
asks her to um so so she asked the music director to, to change the key that they're rehearsing in and he refuses so she storms off the stage and, and walks out of the met forever yeah and they never have her back. And they never have her back. Yeah. So she has to go to um, Oscar Hammerstein, who is the grandfather of the Sound of Music uh, South Pacific. Um, she joins his um, Manhattan Opera Company. Right. So she's got a temper. Let's add so, a temper to the list. So, so that's 1904. That's 1904. So, so, so one other thing, of the level of fame at yeah. this point. So in the beginning, the beginning of the 20th century, she's eat, her photo is put on chocolate bars, Poulain chocolate bars in France. There you go. Wow. That, you, you cut... That, he may have stamps. What, on, on the packet? Oh, not, not on the actual oh, On the actual, no, not on the chocolate, on, on, the, the, on the wrapper. You wow. know, yeah. So you can't, you can eat Emma Calvey. You can't eat Emma Calvey, no. But you can eat her chocolate. There you go. So th- this sets, that's, that's the level of fame she's at, at the point. Okay. So this, yeah, this Fred tells us exactly. Her. So, so 1902, so just before she storms off the Met, they, they sign her up. She agrees to record. And uh, Landon Ronald, who's Fred's, uh, one of Fred's colleagues, He's, he's, he, he's the musical director. He's the musical director yeah. under Fred. He, he warns Fred that she may prove difficult. And they've offered her 100 guineas, which is about 100 quid. I mean, it's a lot of money, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's more than they offered Caruso, well, isn't yeah. it? Caruso got 100 pounds, and she gets 100 guineas a, bit a couple more, of months later, which yeah. is a, a guinea is a pound and a shilling. So, there, so, yeah. so a little bit more. 5% more. There you go. So, yeah, so Landon warns Fred that she may be difficult because they've heard these... These rumours. And this is, how, this is how he remembers it. The day of the recording, so 1902. I think it's the first half of 1902, isn't it? Yeah. This is, this is uh, Landon Ronald's diary. She, Emma, was staying at the Hyde Park Hotel, and I was to fetch her in a four-wheeler and take her to Maiden Lane and accompany her on the pianoforte. After much running about after her music that she'd forgotten and picking up gloves that she'd dropped, I safely got her into the cab. So kind of so far, so what? A sort of normal, slightly scatty singer. <laughs> but then the cab goes from Mayfair to Maiden Lane in Covent Garden, which, uh, as you may remember, is a studio located on a grimy cobbled street just behind the Strand. I mean, it's not the most salubrious of places, no. is it? And, and, and that's, isn't, that's the word Fred uses a lot when he describes it, is grimy. Grimy, yes. Um, and in yes. fact, just where we are in the history of the gramophone company, they're about to move to shiny new offices. To shiny new, yes. And this is, this is amongst the last recording sessions at this grimy place. But perhaps she didn't know that, because, <laughs> because his diary goes on. I must admit that the offices made in Lane at the time scarcely inspired confidence or gave the impression that they belonged to a large and prosperous company. Certainly, they didn't impress her, because when I gaily said, here we are, let me help you out, a sharp rejoiner came. Can I do it in French? Mon Dieu, but never in my life will I enter such a place. It is a tavern, not a manufactory. I shall be robbed there. I know it. I feel it in my bones. You have brought me to a thieves' den. That, that was That's terrible. Wasn't nice. it? it was It was great. I could, I could listen you, to that. You've got, you got a description of what Maiden Lane was like. Well, I... I, I it's, that's rude, isn't it? As it well. is quite rude. Yeah, yeah. It Do is it. quite rude. Maiden Lane, okay, just to take a little step back, you can kind of see her anxiety. She's a very rich, successful opera singer. She's staying in the Hyde Park Hotel, for goodness sake. Um, she turns up in Maiden Lane, which Covent Garden was very seedy at the time. I have a description here. It was a fruit, fruit and veg it's market. A fruit and veg market. It must have um, smelled all the rotten fruit. So Covent Garden in 1902. There's a description of the area just before this period, actually. It was, it's from a book um, called The Victorian Underworld by a person called Kello Chesney. And here's how, here's how uh, Maiden Lane is described. A stone's throw from the prosperous strand are courts and passages littered with rubbish and excrement, where it is risky for the casual visitor to penetrate, even in broad daylight. Ooh. 
and above them tenements filled with humanity so degraded that at times, brackets, even in the warmest weather, the rotting, uncoffined bodies of the dead remain where they died. Day after day, among the close-packed streets of the prostitutes, and there were many, Chesney writes, The streets and byways fill as evening approaches and the gas lights go up, with women and children to suit most taste and all pockets but the poorest, starched young swells, awkward provincials, seedy dick swivelers, furtive old perverts, are all energetically catered for. Which category would you put yourself well, uh, in? I'm a dick swiveler. <laughs> what, what is what it? was the last one? A pervy old gentleman? That, oh, that, that, that might be me, I think. What is a dick swiveler? I can't imagine. I, I, don't, I, I think we can imagine. It's quite yes. athletic. Yeah, it? yeah. Anyway, so this is the... This was this was a decade or so before before nineteen oh two, but you know you get the picture. We're we're in London is on the cusp of modernity. We're we're only fourteen years post the Whitechapel murders and Jack the Ripper. Queen Victoria has just died. It's a pretty grim area. Yeah, it's a cheap startup it's a, it's a um, cheap place, <laughs> and they they're, they're, the company's now successful, and they're they're about to leave it and move to into the city. Moved into the city. Yeah. Um, so. Here we are. She's refusing to get out for obvious reasons. And how does he get? How does he get her? Well, in? he suddenly has an idea. She's sitting in this cab outside Maiden Lane. An inspiration, he writes. I'd get a very good-looking young man who had just entered the business, named Sidney Dixon. Sydney. Sidney. Well, actually, Sydney. We, James and I, whenever we talk about Sydney, we always put a Birmingham accent on. But actually, I found out he's from Manchester, so it'd be a Sydney, more of a Sydney. 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 Sydney, to come down and hand her a check. I implored her to wait a minute, and I rushed up the stairs quicker than I've ever climbed stairs before or since. Dixon was there, sure enough, and I shrieked at him, pushing him downstairs. Her check, her check, give it to her. Look handsome. Be nice, because she won't come in. And he did it. This is still the diary. The next thing I remembered <laughs> was her saying in a cooing voice, Mais vous êtes gentil, monsieur. Merci beaucoup. Oui, oui, oui. And up she went to yeah. the studio. Yeah, venez, mon petit Ronald. Come, come, little Ronald. Mon Let's go record. Yes. Um, so, actually, down the stairs they went to the stu- studio. I've, I'm, I'm getting get in trouble here yeah. with, the, with it. It's it was actually upstairs. First upstairs. Everyone yeah. thought it was downstairs. Yeah, the studio yeah. is now upstairs. Upstairs they go to record. But, says Landon, our troubles weren't over. In the middle of Habanera from Carmen, she turned and asked me if she was in good voice. Result, one spoiled record. Because, obviously... There was no overdubbing, there was no stop. Yeah. You, you had one shot, and if you messed it up, you messed it up. Yeah. Then in another selection, she declared that she could not proceed unless she was allowed to dance. Another spoiled record. She hasn't really got this recording malarkey, has she? No, she's she's showing off she's by this show- point. She's, she's just thrown herself into she's it. She's showing dancing. Um, Shall we listen to some of her? Yeah. This is this is um, her singing Carl, um, Carmen's Habanera, so the one she stops in the middle of. I don't think, I'm afraid, it is from 1902, but it's a very early recording, probably around 
you go. A bit of Carmen there. So that's just a single piano in the background and her right in front of the recording horn, I would think. And in another recording, she was getting to the high note when there was, and this is in Gerald North Moore's book, there was a small but noticeable vocal disaster. Now, he doesn't say what, does he? No. She obviously... The voice is cracked or something, yeah. So Fred slips another wax. And, you know, masters were expensive, weren't they, these wax cakes that they... Yeah. Because we'd moved to wax. we moved from, yeah, from, yeah. from zinc to wax now, hadn't Just, we? just within um, the last year. Then. But you can just imagine them. They're tutting and they're, you know, raising their eyes. To, but obviously not wanting to offend with this very sensitive... Because she'd never seen one of these before, had she? I don't think so. I think she might have recorded onto... On some cylinders. Some cylinders. Right. But um, I don't think she's recorded onto a disc before. I think what comes through in all of this is Fred's patience, and I think that's one of the the, the qualities that made him so successful at working with with creative people is just allowing them to to calm down into into their performance. <laughs> oh, um, there was another quite a famous song she did, and this is Carmen again, um, an aria called Seguidile, on which she danced because she's a method actress, and the recording was going very well. She got to the high notes at the very end, and in her opinion, messed it up. So you can hear her say, oh, mon dieu, mon dieu, mon dieu, at the end. We're going to play that now. Listen to the very end. You can just hear it. Now, they did release this, so they obviously didn't think it was too ruined, but it's quite an interesting, um, given the story you've just said, uh, we've just said, it's quite an interesting uh, 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 piece of recorded history. This is Sigurdile from Carmen uh, by Emma Calve with a mon dieu at the end. Fantastic. Mon dieu. Fan- yeah, very good. Very good. And they did give up on Carmen after that. I just think they thought, we're done. Uh, we're joined by Michael Volpe, the founder and recently retired general director of Opera Holland Park. Who clearly doesn't look old enough to have recently retired. <laughs> he doesn't. That actually. is what you wanted me to say, wasn't it, <laughs> uh, Almost precisely, <laughs> Thank yes. you very yeah. much. Um, yeah. Checks in the post. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, Emma Calvey, yes. how, how do you rate her voice? Well, it's, as I, I think it's important to note about all these recordings, when we listen from a hundred years distance, that the dynamic range within these recordings is virtually non-existent. And, and that means that you have to, uh, you know, when you get a DVD in it, but not a Blu-ray and you've got a player that upscales it, it. you know, yeah. you kind of have to do that with your ears and you have to try and understand what am I really listening to here? And the only way to judge a voice is really in the flesh. Yeah. I mean, okay. we, that, that is a truism of, of of this industry but you have to also accept that calvey sung heavy roles in large opera houses which means that if she didn't have a a big voice or a sufficient voice she would never have been able to do that on these recordings it does sound like a lighter voice uh, but the habanera recording yeah it does give a better impression of the qualities within that voice. And you, you do have to work quite hard. There is a, a solidity and a purity, at, at the, particularly at the top end, 
of the voice. Uh, and if you listen to the the bit where she says "l'amour" twice at yeah. the early part of the aria, you can hear that and the final exclamation. She does take quite a lot of breaths okay. in odd places, and there's a thing called portamenti where you change up into different notes. So that that is a bit clunky at times. But I think, you know, she would have been incredibly weirded out probably by this process. Well, of, by having to sing into a horn. Of yeah. recording, yeah. yeah. And so I suppose, and she sounds like a bit of a wild card as well anyway, so she probably didn't care too much. <laughs> they can also be a bit off pitch, these old recordings, and that's probably got a lot to do with the way they were. Speed, uh, the yeah, speed, the, the, yeah. Of the, the cutting blades, yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, and, it, and that's a bit unfortunate if you're yeah. a singer. Yeah. Really. They only had one shot, remember? Yes, yeah. limited, true. Limited number of, of goes. I think the my God, mon Dieu, at the end of the Seguidia is funny. And that's just her saying, oh God, I really messed that yeah, one yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but she, you know, it was a voice of the age. And uh, she's thought of as a soprano, but this is a, actually Carmen is a lower lying mezzo. Right. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, but back in the day, you know, they didn't really worry so much about that if, if a big name singer wanted to do the role. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about this role because well, everything we've read and, and heard was that she kind of set the template for the Carmen for, mm, for, for, yeah. t- throughout history. How much impact do you think her early portrayal of Carmen had in shaping the role? Well, back then, these were the early adopters of, of the role. You know, the, these were recently composed operas. And so she had the opportunity, but also very few people will have seen her doing it in relative terms. Only people who sat in the opera house would have seen it. And then the critics who will have reported on it would have said, you know, she was a great Carmen. So that in general, that's a very tiny number of people. Nowadays, millions can judge a person's Carmen and say, oh, she's the definitive Carmen. So it's hard to say, but equally, she was a bit of a sort of a a trendsetter Mm. for the role. Singers like Calvi actually became big stars because of, read newspapers yeah. and, and critics were really really important back in those days and they were the sort of taste setters and judge judges if yeah. you like we i know, mean we know she made a lot of money she bought a castle didn't absolutely she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they were they were really glamorous and famous people and uh, not all the critics liked her i did pick a quote up about ernest newman he was an english music critic yeah. who called her utterly unmusical which is really <laughs> just the most did horrendous you, did you get off the fence? i mean that really is an horrific yeah. An horrific judgment to make of a, of a top opera singer. But, uh, I mean, Carmen today, they play it sultry, vampy, slutty sort of thing. I, I gotta be honest. I detest the opera itself. I mean, I've always seen it as a bit of, I call it the aloe aloe of opera. Uh-huh. It, <laughs> It's, um, <laughs> okay, hold, I've got to say something. I, I saw you do it, not you, but yeah, Holland Park. It's a good it. show. My wife was in it. Yeah. Oh, was she? In, in the, uh, Slutty, vampy, sultry. Was she Carmen? No, she was in the, the chorus. It was yeah. brilliant, but you, it was certainly uh, vampy. Let's say it was. It, it that's was, what the I way people it, but, play it. Yeah. You know, and the music kind of lends itself to that. You know, it's a fabulously pop. It's pop. It's definitely in the top five popular operas of all time, yeah. which makes me wrong if you see what I mean. Yeah. But I and it's, it does have some lovely music and obviously lots of tunes everyone recognises. But it's all a bit, it's all a bit kind of cardboard cutout for me, really. You know, and so I, I've never ever been able to warm to Carmen. But uh, but don't let that stop you because most people do love it. So to say she's the great component uh, exponent of it is probably it's hard for me to say that yeah. clearly. And it's uh, but I guess we have to accept the context into which she was given that title really and so who are we to disagree you know i think that's probably it 
I mean, is it because she was the first, she's the one that people remember? I think certainly one of the early adopters, yes. They they go, wow, this... Because it was a bit of a, you know, uh, a juicy piece at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of set set the world alight. It, yeah. it was, you know, really quite nasty. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are no redeemable characters in Carmen, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. They're all idiots. <laughs> and, you know, this ridiculous, you know, bullfighter comes along yeah. with his cape and sings his song and his tight trousers. I mean, it's. I think it's a preposterous piece. But it was pretty raw stuff at yeah. the time you yeah. know uh and well, it was immediately popular yes yeah. it was pretty yeah it was pretty but although although you say that a lot of operas you know traviata bohem and lots of hugely well, critics it's oh, i'm not so sure you know composers would go off and make a few tweaks and cut it you know carmen originally was very very long and it's still too long as far as I'm concerned. But it, but they came, you know, he sort of cut it down. And there are versions of Carmen you did. They're like three and a half, four hours long, you know. But I imagine we have to put some credence in the in the title, one of the originating great Carmens. Right. I, I think it's impossible for me to say she wasn't. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's hard to say whether she was based on these recordings. Because you've yeah. used that brilliant James Bond analogy. Yeah, I mean, you know, we all say Connery was the best because he was, he was, because he, <laughs> he was, and he was the first. Yeah. Um, Are you uh, saying he's not the best? I Listen, I love Sean Connery, and he, he sort of, he, he was the, he kind of convinced you he could probably have a fight and get away with it. You know, Roger Moore, you know, you, you your gram would beat Roger Moore up. Yeah, but he's my I, Bond. Being a <laughs> and he was mine mainly, yeah. the kind of most Bonds I saw. But I think Daniel Craig is the best mm. Bond. I, I, you know, from a kind of concept of he looks like he could kill somebody yeah. with his bare hand. And yeah. if you've ever read the books, he's much nastier than he is. And yes, Craig and, is much more like uh, a... Uh, let's, let's, back, let's backtrack to Calvin. <laughs> hey, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, we're going to, yeah, yeah, to the James Bond <laughs> Hey, listen, this is all good cultural, you <laughs> yeah. know, horizon lifting. You know. But what, 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 you're, what you're saying, because she was the first, she stuck. Yeah. I think she embodied a role that not many people knew at that time. Yeah. Now we've seen a thousand million Carmens, but back then no one had really established what that role was about. Um, so Sidney Dixon recalls that at the end of the session, poor Landon Ronald, an artist to his fingertips, sat there, his face blanched, recovering from the whirlwind excitement. We prepared to close for the day at the studio. On the floor by the doorway was a crumpled ball of paper. Someone casually picked it up and smoothed it out. It was Madame Calvé's cheque. Now, what so, does that mean? Does, does that mean she she refused to take it or they refused to give it to her? Uh, reading about Madame Calvé, she likes money. Um, I suspect she's... I mean, the fact of her dancing and, and getting giddy and, you know, I wonder if they've had a drink or two. They're, often when they recorded, they had oh, champagne. They nip, and nipped over the rules. And, and I, I, wonder if she, I wonder if she's, you know, in her excitement, she's just let, left it behind and by mistake. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure she will have collected the money. Uh, yeah. And it, it's a mark of her, of her diva-ness, her diva-ishness, mm-hmm. uh, that when Fred was recording Gora Jan in India, uh, who is featured on this series too, who had a huge entourage, he remarked that um, Gora Jan's entourage was so big that even Calvé had a smaller cortege. Cortege, is that the phrase? Is that the word? We associate uh, that with... Anyway, had yeah, a smaller cortege is, yeah. uh, and required much less attendance. So 
he used Emma Calvey as a kind of benchmark. A benchmark diva. Which, like, a benchmark diva. Yeah. Which is probably, I mean, it's left a scar on him if he's, <laughs> if he's referring back to her a few exactly. years later. Yeah. Exactly. But what a, what a, what a, what a story. And, and, and it didn't end particularly well, did it? For no, she, I mean, she, she carries on. She actually retires um, from being a frontline recording artist I think in, in in within four or five years of these recordings, but then goes on tours, you know, performing in theatres and and doing the greatest hits of Emma Calvey basically until the until the twenties. During this time, she uh, buys a castle in in France. Yes, you do. Very very close to um, the town that she was brought up in, or the te- the the few town she she moved around a few towns when she was growing up. Mm. But very interestingly, so I, I plotted on. Google Earth, you know, where, where these towns were, and I found the castle. The opening line of her biography is her, her reminiscing about walking past, past the castle on the way to school. As a child? As a child, and looking at it and saying, one day wow. I will own that. Wow. And then, of course, she does own it. That's, it, that's in her autobiography. It was about 25 miles away, so there's no <laughs> way. So, it's, so it's a bit like Fred's memoirs. Memoirs can be very unreliable, and Emma Calvey's were. But she bought a castle and, and lived there until she, she sold it just before the war um she did some teaching there so she taught young uh, particularly girls how to yeah. how to how to sing i don't think it went terribly well i think she ran out of money i think she sold it because she had to and then very very sadly she dies um the the, the german and the nazis invade it becomes part of vichy france yeah. so it's not actually run by the by, by the, the the nazis and she dies aged 83 in a clinic in montpellier pretty much yeah. penniless well, there you go. And mon Dieu. Mon Dieu. Back to the obituary in Time magazine. It, the, the guy who's, who's writing the obituary says, she sold her chateau before World War II. Fishy dispatches were brief, but in her mountain village, Emma Calvey had probably long been cold, ill, half-starved. Most old ladies in France are these days. So there's a little bit of propaganda as well. story. So there you have it. There is the story of Emma Calvey and the quite extraordinary journey she, she went on. Let's... A little blast of Calvé to finish. Yeah. And that's it. Thank you for listening. We will um, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Sound of the Hound was edited by Andy Hetherington. For more details on the topics discussed in this episode, visit soundofthehound.com or follow us on Twitter on at the sound of the H1 or on Instagram on the sound of the hound.